Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everybody, this is Lou Nash. And this is Ella Gordon-Latty. And together we welcome you to the redesign of everything. Where we will be talking to the global changemakers, the designers and the practitioners who are helping to redesign a better future for us all. We'll be giving you not only the inspiration, but also the tools to redesign your world for the better. Design is the single most important force in building a thriving future for us all. A future that's more regenerative, more resilient and more circular by design. So let's share these stories and insights gleaned from our guests at the front line of this transformation. Thank you for being here and for listening, because together we really can redesign everything. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hey, how you doing? Do we sound like we have really crazy Kiwi accents? Like, can can you tell? <laughs> Just a little bit. You know, it's actually funny. My uh, my wife and I, our dream is actually to one day uh, uh, move out and live in New Zealand. We've, uh, I mean, we travel all over the world, but this is uh, where you live is our dream place. Yeah, one day. well, so let's maybe make... we'll. Uh, Let's make that happen for you, Tom. <laughs> I, I'd appreciate it, you know, in time for sure. We'll be able to hopefully hang out in person. Yeah, awesome. that's really cool. Hey, thanks so much for yeah. joining us. We're just absolutely thrilled to have you here. You're such a superhero of our work. It's awesome. Joining us today is Tom Zaki talking about the redesign of everything. Tom is founder and CEO of TerraCycle, a global leader in the collection and repurposing of hard-to-recycle waste, operating now in 21 countries and working with some of the world's largest brands, retailers, cities and manufacturers to create national platforms to recycle products and packaging that currently go to landfill or incineration or, God forbid, end up in the environment. Through TerraCycle, Tom is pioneering new waste management processes involving manufacturers and consumers to create circular solutions for hundreds of waste streams, such as cigarette butts, laboratory waste, used coffee capsules, even dirty diapers, used chewing gum and flexible food packaging that otherwise would have no path to be recycled. Notably, TerraCycle developed and operates the largest supply chain for ocean plastic in the world, partnering with companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever to integrate this material into their product packages. In 2019, TerraCycle, along with 25 top companies, launched a new circular shopping platform called Loop that enables consumers to shop for some of their favourite products and brands in durable, reusable packaging, with pilots running internationally. If that's not enough, Tom's author of four books. I've read one of them, creator of a reality TV show, Can't Wait to Watch, a regular media voice, a board member for the Alan MacArthur Foundation, amongst others, and is a frequent global lecturer at the world's top universities. A true Renaissance man. <laughs> Alice setting you up, Tom. She wrote that. I had, I had to write that. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. So kicking things off, what does the redesign of everything mean to you? It's a good question, you know, um, <laughs> and, I, and I think it, it starts in different ways, right? So the, the, the most obvious things we always talk about in product and, you know, making products and uh, selling them in the consumer package good space and retailers is how do we move away from linear to circular systems, you know, linear being the sort of take, make, waste, throw away uh, approach and uh, circular, you know, starting with recycling and then moving into reusables. Um, and that would be, I think, where most of the energy right now is spent on redesign. But I do think it's important that we acknowledge that 
that is in itself not going to become intrinsically circular. What we really have to redesign, which is going to be the most challenging thing, is our appetite. And how do we really not just make the products we buy more circular, uh, you know, more in, in tune with nature, but also edit our appetite as well to be in tune with what nature can sustain. And I think the second question will be the hardest one for us, even myself included, to grapple with, but probably the most important. I think like we kind of call that mindsets, right? Like shifting mindsets. So, you know, you've established these amazing system solutions. Is one of the greatest challenges getting consumers to actually come on board them and change in human behavior, no matter how perfectly designed they are? Well, it's a really good question, this thing about human behavior. TerraCycle is known for, you know, collecting and recycling hard to recycle waste, like in New Zealand, you know, everything from, as you mentioned, oral care waste to coffee capsules, cosmetics, you name it. And there, yes, you know, uh, we can launch programs, but unless consumers take part and actually collect and recycle, they don't matter. What's been really interesting is in our newest platform uh, called Loop, which is all about reusing which is actually launching uh, in Australia uh, end of this year with, uh, with Woolworths. You know, this is all about shifting from single use to reusable consumption. And what we have found now that it's live in a number of countries in Europe and North America is that the behavior change is incredibly hard. What, what people want is, you know, are things that are convenient, probably mm-hmm. first and foremost, filled with features and benefits, and then all that delivered to them at the right price. And notice none of those things are sustainability. Mm-hmm. And what we found is, that to get people to shift immediately into more sustainable lifestyles, we can't actually edit their desires. We have to create sustainable opportunities or sustainable systems that play into their desires. So that, you know, that, that's how we at least get some quick action to occur. But we do have to, in the long run, I think as we zoom out, think about sort of our cultural relationship and redesigning our cultural relationship to this idea of consumption. Yeah, that's super cool. Mm, And Tom, we're really interested to kind of wind things back to your childhood, because we know that for so many people that do make change, there was something along their journey, whether it was an experience or a relative or someone important to them that kind of planted the seeds for the change that they are making today. So we'd love to know what was what kind of triggered your journey? So for me, you know, there's a couple of points in my life that I think really led to where I am today. And, uh, you know, for me, everything began. Uh, I was born in Budapest in 82, and it's only relevant because Hungary was still uh, effectively under the Iron Curtain at the time, so it was still communist. Mm. And in 86, Chernobyl happened, which was just a few hundred kilometers away. Um, And that destabilized the borders, and, you know, we were able to escape effectively as political refugees and, you know, went to Germany and then Holland and finally Canada. You know, that's only relevant because I, I really, landing in North America, fell in love with entrepreneurship. You know, and, and honestly, at the beginning, for selfish reasons, it's, mm. a, it's a fast route to fame and fortune. But the, perhaps the biggest turning point, you know, once I sort of really knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, was my first year in university. I went down to New Jersey for, for college, and uh, the first class I took was Introduction to Economics, and the professor gets up on stage and says, what is the point of business, which is an incredibly reasonable opening question for the opening class. You know, the answer she was looking for uh, was profit to shareholders. And that like took all the excitement, you know, all the wind out of my sails because it was like, yes, I get it. Profit's important, you know, but is that the reason? And that really is what led me on this journey of how do we create purposeful business that 
you know, the purpose is why it exists, right? How it helps humanity, how it helps uh, the planet. And then can it achieve that at a, at a profit? And if it can, it can grow and flourish. And if it can't, it won't. It'll, it'll shrink and die one day. And that profit is more like an indicator of health than the reason of being. And was waste or, you know, looking into waste management something that you always had felt passionate about changing? So, you know, so for me, it was this like journey, like entrepreneurship. And then, you know, we just talked about pivoting to purposeful entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about like wanting to find an idea. And waste, you know, it started really to fascinate me because it is such an interesting concept filled with so many anomalies. So just to give you some examples, right, we live in a very materialistic world today where in no small part we measure our status in society by how much accumulated stuff we have. But in a society that does that, isn't it weird that everything we own, I mean literally everything with no exception, will one day belong legally to a garbage company? And yet, for how big that concept is, I mean, it's an industry, the waste management industry, that will legally own everything we possess. It's really uninspired what we do with it. I mean, we basically put it in a pile or burn it, you know, for the vast majority and some minority, we maybe reclaim the materials it's made from. Mm. And so it's filled with all these crazy anomalies. It's the only material that has negative raw material value. And, And for how ridiculously big this concept is, the waste management industry is also the least innovative industry for per dollar of revenue it enjoys. I mean, by far. And this, I think, has to do with the fact that we are repulsed by waste. I mean, we're built to be repulsed by our waste. You know, mm. a toilet is a, is a machine to get our waste away from us as fast as humanly possible. There's this sort of so much interesting stuff going on, and it's all very blue ocean from an innovation point of view and, of course, very purposeful. So it's a really rewarding and exciting topic to uh, to sink one's teeth into. I can really relate to it from my childhood and I just I think it's just so hard for people to try and work against that linear system, right? I mean, I know when, you know, I used to go to my grandmother's house and she never had handles on any of her pots. They were given to her as a wedding gift and she would never have thrown them away, even though they had no handles and she used to have to try and hold them with the tea towel. You know, that kind of holding things on for really long periods of time, whether they can be repaired by yourself, you know, the heirloom sort of culture, definitely in, in my lifetime. And and obviously we're super keen to, to help redesign it. Now more than ever, businesses are being forced to rethink how they operate. And Circularity is here to help. We run workshops that bring your organisation, industry or community together. You may wish to gain an introduction to the circular economy opportunity, have a masterclass on creative closed-loop systems for your materials, or think about how you can change behaviours, develop circular business models, or even explore potential impact territories for your brand. Our facilitators at Circularity design and deliver immersive experiences that defy convention and demand engagement. You find the time and we will make the most of it. We build capability, unlock new value and co-design an extraordinary future together. Reach out via our website, circularity.co.nz. I'm really interested at the moment in time, the back of napkin drawing. When did you have the TerraCycle idea? I was sort of, you know, really my first year of university, really seeking a purposeful business idea. And, you know, the, the honest story is so I, I went down to school in Princeton, which is in New Jersey, and most of my friends stayed in university in Canada. And, you know, my, my friends, as a, you know, as a sort of a part-time hobby, were growing some marijuana plants in their basement, and they couldn't really get these plants to work well because, you know, back then, I mean, it's become a bit more liberal now. I mean, it's federally legal in Canada, but it wasn't back then. And uh, so they were doing it in their basement with hydroponic lights, and then you have these 20-year-old guys trying to do this. It was, it was just not working. And then one day they called me and 
they said, hey, we got these plants to, to start working. And so I went up my uh, spring break and we had a you know, great party. It was lots of fun. And I asked them, like, so how did you get the plants to, to grow and to flourish? And they said, well, we took organic waste, fed it to worms uh, in our kitchen, took the, uh, you know, I guess you would officially call them worm castings or colloquially worm poop and feed it to the uh, plants and the plants did brilliantly. And so for me, this was like a eureka moment yeah. noting, I mean, if you ask any gardener, there is nothing new in what I described. But, you know, to me, uh, hearing that, that was pretty awesome. TerraCycle actually began as a worm poop company. You know, our first, I ended up leaving school a year later to dedicate myself full time to it. And we were making, taking organic waste, feeding it to worms at scale, you know, packaging it actually in used soda bottles, selling it. And that was how TerraCycle grew for the first four years, literally making and packaging a product out of waste uh, in the lawn and garden industry. And that's how we began. In fact, even the TerraCycle logo, when I originally drew it, it's supposed to represent a worm. TerraCycle is Earth Cycle. It actually all started there, even though that's, that's just, you know, I guess our exceptionally humble beginnings. I, um, I've got the worm bin at home too, Tom, and whenever I'm feeling climate change fatigue and it's getting me down, I get out there and move the worm poop, as you say, back into the garden and get things moving and growing. And I think, like, as human beings kind of tapping back into that, that flow of nature, things flowing, things working, but also yeah. regenerating is really, really key because, you know, I just think so So few of us have those experiences nowadays. I think you're right. I actually want to pick up on something that you just said there. You know, there's two really important things to honor in, uh, uh, in, in, in what you've said. One is all the answers are in nature already. I mean, nature knows how to be not just circular, but intrinsically sustainable. And the crazy part is so did we. Like, as you described your mom, you know, and her experience with her pots, isn't it amazing that all of humanity up until really the 1950s lived in balance? Our consumption was in balance. We used to mend our clothes. We cobbled our shoes. You know, we, we didn't have waste. I mean, the modern idea of waste was really invented in the 1950s. And all of this stuff, every environmental issue we're dealing with today, whether it's climate change or the waste problem or the mass extinction we're living through, is all really born out of hyper-consumerism that began just 70 years ago. Yeah, when I read um, one of your books, that was the, the kind of big revealing insight for me was how long we had this problem because it is an enormous complex problem and then when you quantify it in terms of years, I was like, oh my goodness, like that's my lifetime, like that's not that long. Yeah. Particularly if you're a studier of history, you know, like you're talking things that are hundreds of years long. And I think it was it was definitely a trigger for me to read that fact because I went, we can do something about that. Yeah, we can. I think that's the hope. But we also have to, I think, really see why did disposability win, as you said, right, over a culture uh, that was you know, present before. And I think disposability won. And we have to really honor why it won because we have to beat it at its own game. Totally. It mm. won because it's uh, convenient and affordable. And I think this is the key challenge to the entire sustainability circular economy movement is, is how do we create systems that surpass disposability while becoming more circular. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, being a completely coastal nation, like many countries in the world, we're acutely aware of ocean plastic. And we love that you guys are developing the largest supply chain for ocean plastic in the world. And Lou and I were speaking earlier, we're like, how on earth did you do that? And to, to the point, you know, about mindsets, obviously part of that process for developing a supply chain of the size is talking to lots of people sitting in powerful nodes who are 
wedded financially and uh, to the old system of take make waste and love to hear about some of those conversations that you had with people in these positions to unlock this Absolutely. First, it's important to note that, you know, the the issue of marine or ocean plastic is, I think, much bigger than any one of us can fathom. It's uh, uh, it is not just the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, but we can now find ocean plastic everywhere. Every aquatic body, whether it's the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, the Pacific, everywhere uh, there is there is ocean plastic, every beach, every river. It's everywhere. It's really incredibly uh, pervasive and growing. Up until the 1980s, even cities like New York City used to dump 100 percent of their garbage 10 miles off the offshore. I mean, this is wealthy cities like like New York. Now, a lot of it is coming from emerging regions, you know, like Thailand, Vietnam, and so on, because a lot of people are moving out of extreme poverty into the consumer class and purchasing things that are now in disposable packaging. And there are no formal waste management places. There isn't like a garbage bin or a recycling bin. And so, you know, they get informally disposed. And when the rain comes, washed into a canal, into a river and into the ocean. So it's a massive and also very growing issue. And we do have to do two things. We have to turn the tap off uh, and really think about how we can shift our consumption away from things that, that contribute to this and then build the systems that help stop what you would call sort of in the industry leakage, formal disposal. And then also we have to clean up this gigantic mess. Mm. Now, the part that can be cleaned up is the part that floats. And the sad news is the vast majority of this type of material sinks. I don't know any solutions out there that are able to really deal with the stuff that sinks. So, you know, again, note that we're dealing with the froth at the top, which is just a part of it. And just to paint it, it it is this gargantuan question. Now, the way we try to approach it is we always believe in business as a great tool for these things, especially as a way to grow. We first uh, partnered on on this entire journey with Procter & Gamble, who makes, you know, shampoos and soaps and other things, and uh, and tried to show them how to think about leveraging a supply chain like this. Because if you're you're a P&G, you're typically publicly motivated to start using recycled material, but you're going to use the recycled material that behaves most like the virgin material you were mm-hmm. using, which is why people tend to always make recycled products from council or municipally sourced beverage containers, soda yeah. bottles and milk jugs. That's what makes everything. I mean, have you noticed like a T-shirt will say this was used, made, you know, made using five soda bottles mm-hmm. or this bench was 100 soda bottles or that shampoo bottle was this many. And it's like, we're not using anything else because we design our products from a virgin mentality, a virgin plastic mentality. And so we are trying to use recycled material that behaves like that. And that's why all this other stuff never gets uh, dealt with. Now, to create a supply chain as we have on ocean plastic, it is extremely expensive. I mean, it's almost 10 times more expensive than normal recycled plastic. And it's also lower quality. You know, it, it, it can't be white uh, because it's degraded. You know, it has to maybe come out gray or, or different colors. And so it sets up sort of an impossible challenge on the on the outside. Why would you spend more to get a lower quality plastic if you're making, say, a shampoo bottle? And what we were able to show P&G was that if you inject purpose into your product, and Ocean is an example of that, then instead of spending money on a celebrity or a sports star, you can put that money into the extremely large costs that, that are there to collect and recycle, you know, ocean plastic, for example, mm. and it will do more for you than paying some celebrity. 
And that sort of leveraging that business tool really worked. You know, in two, January 2017, we launched the world's first shampoo bottle uh, made 25% from ocean plastic in France. Uh, that was with Head and & Shoulders, and then it exploded into 20 countries. Uh, other companies saw it and wanted to emulate, Unilever and a number of others. And uh, it grew to be uh, one of the very biggest supply chains pulling actual ocean plastic out of our waterways still to this day. Um, it actually then led to a year and a half ago, I think almost two years ago, from the, through the funding from the PepsiCo Foundation, we created the TerraCycle Foundation, a nonprofit, uh, which is now uh, deployed in Bangkok uh, and soon launching in India, diverting uh, large quantities of river plastic. In Bangkok, I think we've already done 160,000 kilos of uh, river plastic has been uh, pulled out of the rivers before it ends up in the ocean. Wow. And that's sort of extending this whole thing uh, through a nonprofit uh, ecosystem. And we're doing as much we can here, but it is just scratching the surface compared to the sheer amount of garbage that gets put into our oceans every day. At Circularity, we help businesses unlock the circular economy opportunity. We're driven by the belief that together we can create a thriving economy within our planetary boundaries. This podcast has been designed to connect a community of passionate changemakers on a mission to achieve this. We would so appreciate if you could review and share this podcast. The more ears who hear it, the faster we can initiate the change. For more information on what we do here at Circularity, head to circularity.co.nz. Yeah, God, some of those statistics are just crazy, Tom. But what I'm really hearing from you in that that story around how you built that supply chain is some of the critical success factors for your success, like this idea of building partnerships, you know, with really big players, big global players. And I'm particularly interested that... You went for the brands, for the for the end market, and I I love that that insight that you tap into in terms of marketing power, right? And I, I was thinking in my head, you know, what is that? And it felt like, you know, it's the shift of fame for purpose, and that has real intrinsic brand value for these players, and and it, it causes them to say yes, thank you, we'll do that, and and move move mountains to make it happen. Well, and to build right on, I think you nailed it exactly right. You know, we, based on that, actually developed a division of our business, which we call storied materials. And the purpose is to to think about how do we clean up supply chains that otherwise would never be cleaned up. Think, you know, inner city plastic, river plastic, aboriginal plastic, the garbage literally covering the top of Mount Everest. These are all polluted environments, really for one key reason is no one has the business model available to clean mm. it up. And but what we found is, I mean, imagine we're actually working now with a Swiss watch company, you know, who makes very expensive watches and uh, they usually make it out of precious materials. But they're now working with us to make their watch out of steel, which, you know, you wouldn't think is such a precious material, but it's literally the, uh, the fuel tanks and oxygen tanks that are abandoned and littered at the top of Mount Everest. Now, that steel itself isn't that valuable, but you can imagine it's extremely expensive to go to the top of a mountain like that and, you know, pull down all this stuff. But for a watch company whose brand is, you know, sort of athletic and so on, it is actually even better to make their watch out of Mount Everest, you know, metal than it is out of something like gold or platinum. And so you can use business to create these moments. It's just about really thinking it into business logic so that the, the person who's going to pay the bill, in this example, like, you know, the watch company says this is the best thing we could ever do and better than paying a celebrity to wear our watch. Mm, amazing. And that's something that we often talk about is you need this business model innovation to really put the incentives or line up the incentives. But we also know that when married with scientific breakthroughs can create real systemic change. 
and something that I think all countries struggle with, but we do here in New Zealand as well, is in that commercialisation of scientific breakthroughs. We know that yep. TerraCycle's journey, there's been many breakthroughs of how to do things, and we're, we're keen to understand what kind of scientific breakthroughs or the, or the marrying of scientific breakthroughs and business model innovation has really increased your impact. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a blend of both, at least in recycling, right? What I've really learned is that recycling is not about can something be recycled. It's entirely about can something be recycled at a profit? So what makes something you know, locally recyclable is can a garbage company do so at a profit? Mm. And, and if they can, it will be. And if they can't, it won't. So the first thing that we have to really, really deeply focus on is the business model aspect. How do we get someone, an actor, to want to willingly fund those costs? You know, it could be an individual, but it could also be a brand, Colgate or Nestle Dolce Gusto, or you name it, like BIC, you know, to fund, you know, various things from pens to capsules to, you know, you name it, even like Gillette on shavers. It could be a retailer. Uh, it could be someone who disproportionately cares about that waste to cover the bill. Now, once you have that unlocked, then it's a question of, okay, how do we collect it? And that is basically getting it from, you know, the, the consumer, you know, to one of our warehouses in a safe and efficient way. How do we process it so that it can turn into something else? And then uh, that, that can then be thought about once we know that there is a business model that will allow that all to be funded. But that's the first thing, right? And the weird, why do I say it that way? Because usually in recycling, people put it completely backward. They mm-hmm. first focus on can something be recycled? Then they focus on is there the infrastructure available to do it? And what usually gets forgotten is who's going to pay the bill. Mm. And, uh, you know, in doing this now for 20 years across you know, 21 countries, that is the most chronic error that I keep seeing repeated over and over and over. So you have to really invert it. Now, there is a lot of innovation that has to come in how to collect. You know, how to collect is not just do you get the right bins in the right places? How do you make sure it's efficient and economic and safe? But how do you get people to actually do it, you know, be incentivized, motivated to to participate and to do so in a recurring basis? And then you get the science, right, of um, what do you do with all this waste? And we have a, a team of amazing scientists and designers who look at how do you take waste apart? How do you reconstitute it? How do you make it into new materials, either through mechanical or chemical recycling processes, like some pretty neat things, um, you know, and, and give a lot of credit to them. I mean, they invented cigarette recycling, chewing gum recycling, dirty diaper recycling, and hundreds and hundreds of others. Um, and then from there, then it's about well, once you have all that working, then you have to copy paste country by country by country and set up these supply chains, you know, uh, in each region of the world. And that's sort of the task of what we're out there doing on a daily basis. Mm. I'm just thinking in, in the back of my head, Tom, does um, everybody who interviews you then ask for a job? <laughs> I was, well, su- well, I was, suddenly, I was <laughs> suddenly thinking in the back of my mind, okay, I really want to get my hands on some of that technology. Let's bring it down. I can sell it to the brands. I've already got the relationships. I think we need a, I think we need a business model deal here, Tom. But... I, I, love, I love how you're thinking. You know, I will say we did add 100 jobs last year. We're going to add about 150, 200 this year. So we're definitely hiring and people should uh, absolutely oh. look us up. Yeah, that's super cool. Where I'm coming from, and and you, I, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the New Zealand system. You've got some return, you know, kind of products set up here. Um, you mentioned the dental products. I I take those, get those back um, through my school. But you know, the New Zealand system here is 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 quite lacking. You know, there's been a lot of scrutiny on it, particularly when what we called the China sword came down and and wouldn't take our waste anymore. We're dealing with some really antiquated infrastructure here. 
Um, we've got some geographical challenges. You know, we're surrounded by water, and we are still for a lot of a lot of businesses. It's about shipping the waste overseas. I'm interested in if you've got got a take on on what we should be doing here. It's a really good question. You know, recycling infrastructure uh, comes where there's density of people. Mm. And, you know, New Zealand is a, is a small, uh, it's an amazing population, but a small population. And even Australia, you know, which has a, an even larger population, deals with very similar issues of an island nation that has relatively limited uh, recycling infrastructure. And so what's the most important thing to do by far is, is actually not focused. It's sort of like the, the question we just chatted about, not focus on the facilities or the infrastructure, but focus on the economics. And I say this because I believe that infrastructure, factories and so on, are built when there are good business equations to build them for. So let's say that, you know, the three of us get together and we're entrepreneurs and we create a product. Well, let's say we create two products, product A and product B. And product A and we're making them right now in our basement by hand, whatever these products are. And product A, everyone is buying. Like we just can't, we can't make enough of it. And pro that, that's product A. Product B, no one's buying. Now, what will we do? We're going to go build a factory for product A to be able to meet the demand. We'll find the money for it because there's just so many orders coming in. And product B will never bother building a factory for because no one wants mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. if, even if we had a factory for product B, we'd probably close it because it doesn't make sense. And that's what, you know, so it's the same in recycling. When there is positive uh, business models around recycling or composting or whatever it may be, then entrepreneurs and business will create the infrastructure. The big problem in recycling right now is, I mean, you mentioned one of the major factors is China, but now other countries too in, in the, in the uh, APAC region are not importing waste like they used to. They did that for good reason, but it's been very challenging to recyclers who used to rely on those, the ability to export. But also oil prices are down and can keep going down over the past decade, uh, which makes new plastic cheap, which makes it very difficult to sell recycled plastic competitively. And then third is even the quality of our waste is decreasing. As waste gets lighter, it becomes well, less material to access and more processing costs to be able to access it. And so every macro trend is going in the wrong direction for mm -hmm. recyclers. So what, 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 what I would do is if, if you gave me the keys to say, you know, New Zealand's waste management system, I would think about how do I help those recyclers that are in New Zealand doing this good work be, uh, uh, benefit from better, better business model, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and that could be in the form subsidies. Uh, that could be in the form of extended product responsibility. It could be mm -hmm. in the form of deposit return programs. It could be pay as you throw. There's many tools, mm -hmm. but they all equal money going to the recycler. So it's worth doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think about the current business models, another part of the problem, because um, most of them are commissioned long-term contracts based on council um, contracts, right, or contracts with government, yep. which basically means those recyclers uh, struggle to make profit. So they're running on a very efficient, you know, not a lot of capital investment kind of base models. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. This podcast is delivered to you by Circularity, a circular transformation agency working with a new breed of organisations and change makers to solve the environmental challenges of business as usual. We use circular practices to unlock innovation that is better for both people and the planet. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head to our website, circularity.co.nz. Flipping a little bit, I remember one of the 
the kind of products that you recovered and and recycled the the early ones as as gum. And I remember just being as mm. like that was the first kind of moment I was like, oh my goodness, they're getting gum from underneath desks and they're doing this. Can you tell me a little bit more about like what's the circular system for gum? What does it become? How does how do you know how do you do that? Absolutely. So we launched uh, our first uh, gum recycling program uh, in Mexico with Trident. That's sort of a, the first deployment. And when you think about a waste stream, you know, and you asked earlier about sort of scientific breakthroughs, the way to think about every waste stream is it's almost like a different animal, right? Every animal uh, behaves differently, has a different heartbeat, a different sort of movement, a different everything. And waste is very similar, you know? So uh, we have to always think about three things, right? Uh, business model, how do we collect it? And then how do we process it? So business model, you know, there it's go to gum companies, gum manufacturers, because their big problem right now is gum is being banned in schools. It's even been banned in cities, you know, and it's being banned because it's a litter problem. You know, in schools, schools ban it because it's, uh, you know, kids stick it everywhere. And it's mm. a major nuisance for the people who have to clean it up. Now, if you're a gum company, can you imagine you're just being straight up banned in places? That's not good for your business. So that's that's the business issue that maybe mm. gum recycling can help solve and maybe why uh, in, in, in the case of trial and why they were interested in, you know, leaning in. So now you have the business model, which is always first. Then how do we collect it? So, you know, we have to think about gum as probably something that is going to be consumed, not really at home, maybe on the go. And you're probably going to remove it, you know, before you enter like a room or something. So we collect gum similar to cigarettes in, uh, in receptacles that are deployed on light poles and, you know, sort of outdoor environments, right? Uh, you know, where mm. people would be walking uh, before they go into their job or their school. And then then comes, I think, you know, more of the essence of your question, right, is, well, what do we do with it? And turns out gum is not food. It's just a polymer that has some, you know, basically, if I simplified it, some sweetness and some flavor, which is why, you know, when you chew it a lot and, that, and, and you know, the taste goes away, then you're just, it's like chewing like a rubber. And it is effectively like a rubber compound. And we can then take that gum and make it into rigid plastic products where the plastic product is about, say, 35% used gum and then 65% other plastic. Uh, we do need to add some other recycled plastics to get to the right sort of, you know, capabilities. Gum on its own at 100% can be recycled, but it would be extremely brittle. So, you know, the ability to make that into useful products goes down, but we can get it in at about 35% and make some pretty amazing products from it. That's amazing. I love yeah. that. I must admit, when I was I was thinking of the visual, you know, because I, I, I didn't know about the receptacles, and I'm like, how are they getting, like, what machinery do they have under those desks, you know? And are, are people, like, lying under the desks and they're scraping off the gum? Oh, my God. I didn't, yes, I yes. didn't go to the point of, no, we still get the consumers to, to put it into the reciprocal. I like it. We just got to get them before they put it at the desk. Yeah, I was thinking about what their job description might look yeah, like. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, Tom? Um, it, gets, it gets, I mean, if you think about, you know, like, gum is one, but, I mean, my, my, one of, if you think, you know, in, in that sense, uh, we now have dirty diaper recycling yeah. you know, up and running in Amsterdam. It's launching in Paris soon and Kobe in Japan. I mean, and that's literally, I mean, without an exaggeration, a shit show. So, you know, there, you know, there's a, uh, there's a lot in credit to the people who run that supply chain because it, it can be a nauseous experience depending on where in that process you are. Yeah, there's actually, there's a, just a couple of plugs for things that are going on with diapers here. There's a, a wife and husband team that's running a delivery pickup service and recycling diapers from your home in New Zealand. And equally, there's some really amazing innovation happening where we're turning wool into and replacing the plastic and 
diapers with wool um, and it can retain a lot more a lot more moisture and it's a lot more healthier so there's some stuff we can talk to you about diapers yeah (laughs) (laughs) thank you tom so much for um, your time today unfortunately we are wrapping up but we have got so much more ground to cover and many more questions to ask you so how would you feel about joining us again for the next episode next week i'd be thrilled really look forward to it oh that's awesome Beautiful. So, so much more to find out. Thanks, Tom. We'll see you next time. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today. And a big thank you to our guest and our fantastic team producing the redesign of everything. For more information about Circularity, the work that we do and how we can help your organisation, head to circularity.co.nz or find us on our social media channels listed in the show notes. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And until next time, let's redesign everything.